Welcome to Superheroes of Science. I'm Stephen. And I'm Sarah. We co-host Science from the Experts. Our guests are professionals doing cutting-edge science right now. They are experts in their field discussing what they know best. So listen up and learn real science from real people. Subscribe now and stay informed of our latest episodes and show your support. In this episode, Ken, being a field geologist, refers to a number of maps. If you would like to see the maps he's referring to, please jump over to our YouTube channel and check out the video. Thank you and enjoy. Joining us today on Superheroes of Science, we're excited to welcome Ken Ridgway. Ken is a professor of geology and geophysics in the Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences here at Purdue University. So welcome, Ken. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, it's great to be here. We certainly appreciate your time because it's like you're one of the hardest people to get on campus, I think. And so uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a rare treat to be able to interact with you. And we really appreciate you taking time to do this. My pleasure. So the, the Alaska area, and this, this is an area that you've done a lot of research and you do field work in. And so you're actually there studying too, right? That's correct. So when I was looking for a research area, I wanted to go somewhere where there was lots of sedimentary rocks because they tell us what's going on at the Earth's surface. But I wanted areas where there was a lot of action. And so when I look at Alaska, as you can see in this uh, figure here, there's two big volcanic arcs of something called the Aleutians. There's another volcanic system over here, some of the biggest volcanoes on the continents here in the Wrangles. And you have the highest topography in North America right here. So I wanted to know what is the sedimentary record of that? Because when we look at se the sedimentary record, like of old mountain belts, they might be completely eroded. Erosion and gravity always win on Earth, as you guys know. And so all we're left with are the erosional products of mountains and volcanoes. And so if we really want to understand how the world works and how it's worked the last four billion years, we have to be able to study sedimentary rocks. But it's good to go to an area where there's lots of action right now so we can tell what the action was in the past when we can't see what the topography was or the continents had a different distribution. Well, when I hear of earthquakes, it seems like if they're around, it's Alaska is always on the list when I see the list of earthquakes. So. It's always shaking up there. I had a student that was mapping a fault system and he was camped on the fault because we, you know, we map along, we make geologic maps. And all of a sudden his tent started shaking. He said, Ken, I think a bear has me. And it was, it was just that we were sitting right on top of the fault zone and it was moving. And um, so, yeah, so that's part of the reason we have all this topography and we have these volcanoes is because things are moving and that's where the earthquake action is. Oh, awesome. Well, I will let you uh, kind of explain what, what, we're re what you're researching there and, and I'd love that you're going to talk maybe how the kind of the formation of that area. Sure, absolutely. So what we do is, you know, as sedimentary geologists, you know, we systematically look at the rock layers through time. So we've worked in areas adjacent to all these mountain ranges to understand when they started to form, what the previous climate was like. And so the last 10 years, we've been working with a number of groups, a number of really big interdisciplinary projects. And 
We think that a lot of Alaska formed because we had an oceanic plateau. An oceanic plateau is a big, thick piece of oceanic crust that forms out in the ocean basin, and it collided with the continental margin. And so a good example of that is the Yangtong Java Plateau. So this is a big piece, 50 kilometer thick piece of crust here, 30 to 50 kilometers thick. It's about three times the size of Texas. I like to say that in case there's any egotistic Texas people in the audience. And this, this oceanic plateau is colliding with the continental margin of Australia here. And you can see this really dark line is the trench where you have subduction, but this big thick piece of crust is so buoyant, it's not gonna be subducted. And so that's why if you look at that trench, you see how it kind of bends to the Southwest and then comes back out. So this is how continents grow. This material gets accreted on to a subduction zone. And it's one of the most important ways that continents grow. We wanna look at the sedimentary record of that process because here we can look at it in real time and so what we found in Alaska is that all of this area of high topography, and it's um, shown, shown by this dashed line here. So this is looking through the upper plate and down to where the subduction zone is. And all of this is thick oceanic plateau crust. And it explains so many things for us about Alaska that we couldn't understand. We couldn't understand why all these red triangles are the Aleutian volcanoes. And then you come across this area of high topography, no volcanoes. Then you come over on the other side of this and there's volcanoes again. But that's because that thick piece of oceanic crust can't get down deep enough in the mantle to start melting to make volcanoes, to get the melts that you need. This is also why we have the highest topography in North America in this area. So Mount McKinley or Denali is located right there. The St. Elias Mountains are located down in here, the highest non-polar glacial ice fields in the world. And so the students and I have been studying how long this process occurs and when did it start? So that's an important question. When did something like this start? And how long does it take for these big oceanic plateaus to get pushed underneath of a continental margin, but now it's stuck. It can't move anywhere. And that's why all the sites miss it. It's like scrambling to get out of something, but you can't get out of it. So we go out in the field and we start making geologic maps. So this is in the St. Elias Mountains. You can see our base camp here. These three tents are where the helicopter dropped us off. This is the Gulf of Alaska out here. So these mountains are growing out of the ocean, guys. And you can see all the beautiful sedimentary rocks right here. And so we're, we're measuring those rocks, getting isotope data that we're going to get isotopes on, get ages on, so we know how old the rocks are. And this is what a, a typical exposure. The student that worked on these rocks is located right here is Paul Landis. He did his master's here. And we were able to show that all these dark rocks, these are all coal beds. And they don't form in Alaska today. And if we look at the pollen in these, so there's always pollen blowing around, as you know, if you have allergies, and we can use that pollen to date how old rocks are because pollen is just the reproductive parts of plants and it undergoes evolution even much faster than the leaves. So because it's such a big advantage for the plants, if, if you have the most efficient way to reproduce, 
So we can look at that pollen and say how old these rocks were. And as you guys know, plants change as you go from the equator up to the Arctic Circle. And we can tell where these rocks were. So these rocks were down by Washington State, Southern British Columbia when they formed. They were deposited on that oceanic plateau, and then they got caught with the train headed north. And now they're colliding with what we call the armpit of Southern Alaska, and they can't get out of there. What the students and I do when we get out there is that, as I mentioned, we start measuring these sedimentary rocks. So you can see two graduate students here. And these rocks, we, we love them because they've been recently deglaciated. <laughs> And so we can see every detail, there's no trees, and we can get really good measurements. And what I've done here is just label some of the different rock types. We use abbreviations for different rock types. And so we end up with, here's this section. We look for fossils in it as well. So this is uh, Brandon and Hannah, they were working with our group the last two summers. And they're pointing out a theropod track. So a, a carnivorous dinosaur track right here. It looks like a bird's foot. That's the theropods. Wow. And this is the bottom of the bed. There's the dinosaurs were walking all around here. All of these are dinosaur tracks. This is probably a hadrosaur. So you guys know the sauropods they have the big rounded feet. Um, so we can look on the bottoms of beds that have been tilted up and start to understand. We can tell the paleontologists, this is where you need to go to find this, or this is where we don't find any more dinosaur tracks. And then people get very interested in that because maybe we've crossed that boundary between the Cretaceous rocks and the Pelagian rocks when the dinosaurs were pretty much wiped out from an asteroid impact. Sometimes we get up there and when we get up in the high mountains, it's just covered by glaciers and ice and the helicopter will you know, drop us off somewhere. We don't like the helicopter to go too far when we're up here because the clouds can move back in and it could be another three weeks before a helicopter could get back to you to get you off the mountain. We prepare for survival. So we never get dropped off by a helicopter without food and without a tent, um, even if the helicopter is gonna stay with us. But sometimes I'll get dropped off on a ridge and the grad student will get dropped off on another ridge. And, and so the helicopter's moving us back and forth. Um, so you, you, you're up so high, the only way to get there is with a helicopter. And yeah. what do you bring with you at that point to do the field research? Well, we bring everything that we can, but you have to worry about the weight because we want to bring a lot of rocks out with us. <laughs> helicopter pilots, they really, really don't like weight, as you can imagine, especially up high like this. So we take our rock hammers, things that we use to measure the thicknesses of beds. These are these really dark beds are coal beds. So again, these are really valuable beds because they tell us something about the plant life. Coals, as I'm sure a lot of the teachers know, form from organic material. And so again, that helps us date these rocks. We look for volcanic ash beds because then we can get an absolute age using radiometric isotopes. Now, how do you know where to go just to look when you're when you're picking a field location like this? How do you know that's going to be the most interesting spot to go? Yeah, so we read the old USGS reports, but a lot of the places we go, no one's been there before, as far as we know. And so what we do is we use Google Earth. We use um, any kind of previous air photos. We use satellite data to say, OK, we, we have this amount of money in our budget so we can work for four weeks. 
where can we get the most impact? So if a helicopter drops us off and leaves for two weeks, where can we work continuously in this area? Because in some areas, you know, if you have to cross a glacier like the Bering Glacier, you know, the Malaspina Glacier, it's the size of Rhode Island, to give you a feel for how big some of these glaciers are. Um, and we can work along the edges of those glaciers if we have ropes and things like that, but we don't want to cross a big one um, unless we're really prepared for alpine travel. And, and usually we have so many rocks and rock hammers and wet socks and wet clothes. That <laughs> the idea of being in a, a crevasse for a long period of time isn't <laughs> very appealing. Um, and a couple of projects that we're working on now that might give people an idea about what sedimentary geologists are interested in. This is a project that Mike Eddy, uh, a, a geochemist here and I are working on. So here's that dashed line that I showed you earlier where that oceanic plateau is stuck underneath the continental margin of Alaska. And there's another oceanic plateau down here in Washington State and Oregon State, and it's called Celestia. And Mike has been working down in this area and we have a grad student, Aaron Donaghy, that's working with us and a couple of undergrads. But our hypothesis is that these two areas, the plateau up here and the plateau up here were once part of a big oceanic plateau that was offshore in the Pacific Ocean. It collided with the margin down here in Washington. Part of it got jammed underneath of Washington state the other part broke away and it's getting transported northward along this big strike slip boundary. It's called the Queen Charlotte strike slip fault zone. It's like the San Andreas. A lot of people have heard about the San Andreas in California, how Santa Barbara is moving northward. It's going to go past LA. Well, in this case, what was down here in Washington state is getting transported all along the margin and now is recolliding and forming this high topography. And we think this forms this process is really important for how continents grow. And so that's why we like studying this. And um, if you know very much about the geology of like Washington and Oregon, you know there's lots of volcanic rocks here. And we think that collision was part of that. We can even speculate, and, and a, a guy named Ray Wells with the USGS made this speculation first time, is that the Yellowstone hotspot is somehow related to this big collisional event and the hot spot that made these oceanic plateaus. And as you guys know, that's an area that's just bubbling and there's geysers taking off because you have this big torch underneath the Western North America. So we're very interested in the sedimentary record of those processes. Other things that we're working on from a sedimentary geology perspective is paleoclimate. Climate change, as you know, is one of the really big issues that we have in, as a society, but also it's, it's a big responsibility for earth scientists as well, because we have that record and that record's in sedimentary rocks. That's the only archive we really have of what the climate was like in the past, because it was, those rocks formed at the surface. And so this is an active project that I, I have going on with a number of geochemists and Brandon is a grad student and we're out in Death Valley. So we, we wanna come up with a way to look at a rainfall indicator because in the climate models, we have to use like leave margins 
to understand how much precipitation occurred. So you, you guys know if you look at leaves in the Amazon, they're nice and rounded because they're trying to get rid of water. But you come up here to Indiana and you have a beautiful maple leaf and it's all serrated because it wants surface area to hold on to water. And so we can use that, but that's very qualitative. So we're trying to come up with ways to actually measure rainfall. And in this particular area, Death Valley, it's the driest area in North America. And we can look at these rocks and these rocks were from about 2.5 million years old up to modern day. So if you guys ever go out to Death Valley, you'll go to a famous place called Badwater when you can walk out on the evaporites and all the flats where they're forming, we can see these, how these rocks have been forming the last 2.5 million years. And in this photograph here where the student is, you can see all white beds or lake deposits and you can see there's a big thick white bed up in here. So that's when the lake was really large. And so we're trying to look at these climate cycles and climate cycles in this particular part of the geologic record, this 2.5 million year area to about 1.5, it's called the Plio-Pleistocene boundary. And it's one that we're really, really focused on because that's when we go from about 40,000 year climate cycles and it's dry and wet to the Pleistocene, this what were you know the really wet glacial climates and we want to see how can we understand how rain changed across that boundary and so i work this is greg mikowski a geochemist here and he does oxygen isotopes of nitrate it's a it's a type of mineral that forms in the desert and we go out there with um this is a high school student that's worked with us and she's helping us collect the data but again, we wanna to start to understand how we can tell how much rain has occurred during the geologic record. And Greg has been to some of the driest places on earth like the Atacama Desert in South America to start to gauge how we can use this as a paleo precipitation indicator. But I hope that kind of gives you a feel how we use sedimentary rocks to look at tectonics, like how oceanic plateaus collide, how we look at it to understand paleoclimate. And these sedimentary rocks are important as well because this is where society gets so much of what we need. We get our groundwater, like here in Indiana, most of our, in Northern Indiana especially, most of the water that we have in our wells comes from groundwater. The water that we have here at Purdue University, we have seven wells on this campus that supply water to 40,000 students. That tells you how much water is underneath the ground here in sedimentary rocks. And that's because this is all glacial sediment. Um, we also, this is where we put our landfills, right? In sedimentary rocks, the rocks that are at the surface. So we have to have scientists and sedimentary geologists to work on those. We get all our, so many of our minerals out of sedimentary rocks. So if you look, if you're in your house right now, the drywall in your house is made of gypsum, which is a sedimentary deposit. If wintertime, we're getting close to that now, we're gonna be putting halite out on the roads. That's a sedimentary mineral that forms in lakes. And so all of these things, not just for the climate history and not just for the tectonics, it has an impact on our everyday living, these sedimentary rocks. So that's why um, they're fun to study. I've been doing it for 30 years and I'm still, 
enthused every day I wake up to go into the lab and work with students and go out into the field and, and study these things. And I think it's, we don't think about and realize, I think oftentimes we kind of go through life and don't realize how much we use and rely on things from, items from sedimentary rock, and how much you can learn from that. This is just amazing that how you're finding out so much uh, about even paleoclimate, things that happened literally thousands and millions of years ago by researching and looking at that the rocks are the evidence behind. That just amazes me that you can get that much information from them. And I think it's even going to be more important, Steve, because as we move to electric vehicles, there's a, a whole nother group of minerals that we need like lithium that you've probably heard of for batteries. And when it, you know, lithium forms in igneous rocks, but in the US most often it's forming in these old lake deposits where the, it's been washed down from the igneous rocks. So all over Nevada, all over what we call the basin and range Arizona, we're gonna be looking for lithium in these, in these lake deposits because we need a source of that. So. These are the rocks that really our society is built around. Oil and gas farming sedimentary rocks. So there's a whole group of sedimentary geologists that work for you know Exxon and Chevron. And I think about them every time I pull up to the pump. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> I'm mad at them because I'm saying, how come they're on my gas at 350? Um, I trained those students and they're not giving me a discount. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, sedimentary rocks are, you know, we have to, they're our best proxy for how our world's going to change as we impact it, as we take more water out of it, as the climate changes, and what we need to make a healthy society, a wealthy society, so that everybody benefits from it. That's awesome. Well, thank you. Thank, that was awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Science from the Experts from Purdue University Superheroes of Science. If you like this episode, subscribe, give us a positive view, and share the love. Hammer down.